Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are in a summer series that we've called Mark. It's all about walking through the gospel of Mark together. And uh, if you've been here for any of the weeks so far, you've heard us say this over and over. It all begins with the first verse of Mark, which says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so John Mark, who's the guy who wrote this gospel, um, this is his thesis. This is his purpose. This is what he's going to prove, and he's writing to do this, that this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And he says it's the beginning Not just because it's the beginning of the book, it's the beginning because the gospel continues even today. As you and I, we wrestle with what it's like to follow God, what it's like to know Jesus and to be his disciple. And so uh, this is week 11, so if you want to open up your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11, that's where we're going to be today. Um, The previous 10 chapters has been three years of Jesus being baptized, walking with his disciples, teaching, heading towards Jerusalem. That has taken three years. Today's chapter is going to be about two and a half days. That's it. And then chapters 12 to 16 are five and a half more days. So really we're covering one week in these last five, six chapters of Mark. Um, all of the Gospels spend a lot of time on this particular week, which we call Holy Week, right? Um, the Gospel of John... of his volume is on this week. Matthew, 37%. Mark, 35%. Luke's a little lower, 20% of his gospel, but he's got the longest gospel. So he still has tons of content just about this week. Why is there so much focus on it? Well, this week was life-changing and life-shaking for the disciples. Uh, You could think of it as kind of like a Pearl Harbor or JFK assassination or 9-11. You know, anybody who's lived through any of those things, they could probably tell you the moment that they heard the news of what was going on. It's that kind of a week for the disciples, shaking them, shaking their faith. And the echoes of that week still continue today. I mean, we still deal with what happened that week and how it impacts us. Now, before I jump into Mark real quick, the bottom of the slide, it just has a a number here. We call it the Ask Anything, 720-551-7080. Um, If you have any spiritual questions about the sermon, about anything else, you can text that number. And generally, uh, at the end of the service, um, us pastors will get up and we'll talk about it. I don't know if we're going to get to it this week or not. Um, But anytime you send that, a pastor will get to you and text you back an answer. Okay? So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. It starts with what we call Palm Sunday. Okay? And Mark gives us some little odd details about this particular story. Verse 1, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you what are you doing, just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. 
the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. All right, a couple odd things. Odd to me, at least, that the owner of the colt would just let him take it, right? A little strange. But maybe, maybe they knew who Jesus was, and they were okay with him borrowing. I don't know. The other thing is it's an unridden colt. Um, nobody's ever been on it before. It's kind of like a miracle, I think, that we pass over because we're familiar with the story. But Jesus just jumps on it, and it's okay with it. It doesn't buck him off. It takes him up the hill, right? Uh, maybe the colt himself recognized that this is Jesus, the Son of God, his creator, right? I don't know. Um, there's also just this, why a donkey? Of all the modes of transportation, why a donkey? Well, in particular, that was a Jewish cultural thing. And when you read through the Old Testament, you'll see a number of times princes ride donkeys. Uh, the book of Judges, for instance, has it numerous times where there's a, a judge, kind of a ruler over, over Israel, and it says he had 40 sons and they all rode donkeys. I don't know. I guess it was the thing to do. Um, but there's also a few prophecies about the Messiah related to donkeys. One of them you'll find in Zechariah chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Wow. We could say that Jesus rode the colt to fulfill prophecy right? I don't like saying it that way. This is a little bit of an aside. I think sometimes we, we approach prophecy maybe not quite the right way. And it has to do with the fact I think we're all used to stories and movies today, right? A lot of times there's some movie that's got a prophecy in it, and the movie has spent half the crowd trying to make the prophecy not happen, and the other, craft, other half trying to make it happen, right? And it seems like the prophecy actually kind of has power, doesn't it? The prophecy is what has to happen. But God's prophecy is completely different in the Bible. It's not a guess at what might happen. God is above time. He knows everything that has happened, is happening right now, and will happen. And so prophecy by him is him basically saying it's going to happen without a doubt or question. Because he knows it because he's already seen it. There's no doubt. He's just reporting back, saying this is going to happen. The prophecy doesn't have any power at all. God has the power. And prophecy is simply a statement of what God already knows will happen. But he tells us in advance so that when we see it happening, we know that he's at work. We can recognize what's happening. All right, back to Mark. Jesus starts riding up the hill on this colt. Verse 8, many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they cut in the fields. Uh, throwing off their jackets was basically a sign of submission. They were declaring his authority and their willingness to follow him. And then the palm branches in the culture, those represented peace and prosperity. In particular, if we look back at that Zechariah prophecy, we'll see the, the peace part of it here. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. 
His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. People were expecting a king, the Messiah, to come and to restore Israel. Israel was under control of the Romans and had been for some time. And they wanted peace and they wanted their nation back. So how did Jesus enter Jerusalem? He's on this colt. Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing for the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. Uh, Some translations will say Hosanna is one of the words there. Hosanna literally means save us now. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be saved. They were reacting this way and cheering and yelling because they expected Jesus to be the Messiah they thought. They were expecting King David, a warrior king, a nationalistic king for Israel to come. And they had this idea for many of the Psalms as well as other prophecies in the Old Testament, including our passage in Zechariah. Judah is my bow and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword and like a warrior I will brandish it against the Greeks. The Lord will appear above his people. His arrows will fly like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the ram's horn and attack like a whirlwind from the southern desert. The Lord of heaven's armies will protect his people and they will defeat their enemies by hurling great stones. They will shout in battle as though drunk with wine. They will be filled with blood like a bowl, drenched with blood like the corners of the altar. And on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. A warrior king. Restoring Israel as a nation, maybe like the shepherd boy who became King David. Or a group of people called the Maccabees. The Maccabees were another group of of Jews that threw out Greeks earlier. But God prophesied a different kind of Messiah as well. And perhaps these verses are familiar to you from Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped, so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This passage details what's known as the suffering servant Messiah. And history details many warrior kings, but only one suffering servant king. I think Palm Sunday is one of the best illustrations to show the difference between Islam and Christianity. When Muhammad went in to capture his holy city, Mecca, he came in on a war horse, brandishing a sword. He had 400 cavalry with him. He had 10,000 foot soldiers. He entered the city and they had the choice. Either they joined him or he slaughtered them and enslaved them. 
Jesus, on the other hand, when he entered his holy city, Jerusalem, he came in on an unridden donkey's colt. He had 12 unarmed disciples with him, and people threw down palm branches. Pretty different. But Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for. And as part of the reason why as the week goes on, the people changed from yelling out, Hosanna, save us, to crucify him. He's not the one we wanted. People just didn't understand. They didn't understand that Jesus was actually going to be both. First, he came as the suffering servant Messiah to open up what we call the age of grace that we enjoy now, a chance for people and us to accept him to be forgiven by him, to be saved by him, to be transformed by him. Basically to accept his gospel. And yes, there is going to be a second coming. And when Jesus comes back, he will come as a conquering king. He will put an end to evil and sin and death. But at that point, that's what he's fighting. Sin, evil, and death. We put it this way. We say the kingdom is here but not yet. When Jesus came on the scene, his kingdom opened up. His kingdom is our ability to join him, to be part of him. That's available now. But it's not yet. The full glory of God's kingdom in heaven isn't here yet. It's actually a two-stage event. The kingdom here, but not yet. And so people missed out. They didn't realize that it was going to happen in two pieces. For Mark's original audience when he wrote this, they were very familiar with Roman generals. And this coming of the king this way, which would have been really strange to them as well, um, they were used to a Roman general conquering a people, coming back in with a parade, and the parade would start with captured slaves and then conquered soldiers and a ragtag group of people. And then the general would come in in his glory. Jesus is coming in, but to conquer sin and death, not people. And he's coming in not to throw out an occupying uh, occupying army of the Romans, but he's coming to occupy our hearts, right? At the moment, the disciples missed it, but give them a little bit of slack. You see, in our own lives, we often want a conquering king to show up, a conquering Messiah. When we're facing conflict and troubles, when we get a bad doctor's report, when we have financial troubles, when we have relationship issues, we want a conquering king. But we don't necessarily want a king who's coming in to deal with our sin. Because if we're dealing with our sin, that's going to be painful and we have to change, right? So Jesus came into Jerusalem. And he went and he looked in the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. This is the end of day one. It's Sunday. Um, What should Jesus have seen in the temple at this point? It was Passover week. Um, Tons of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem had swelled to 10 times the normal population during Passover. It was the first day after a Sabbath um, of Passover week. So this would have been the day that a lot of the sacrificial lambs for Passover would have been brought into the city. Um, he should have seen a lot of those pilgrims in there praying, Jews and Gentiles alike. That's what was expected to get ready for the week. 
And he goes and he checks out the temple and then he just leaves. It's kind of a whimper, isn't it? For a coming king just to kind of leave. A little different. Then Monday morning, day two. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. This is a little baffling for us, isn't it? Um, Jesus cursing something. It doesn't really sound like Jesus, does it? Maybe he was just hangry, right? You know, you're, you're not yourself when you're hungry, that sort of thing. I don't think so. I don't think he was hangry. I don't think he was throwing a temper tantrum because he didn't get any figs. He's not abusing his power here. This is a teaching moment. <laughs> he spent a lot of the time here teaching his disciples, and this is another lesson. Now, we're not used to fig trees around here. Um, we're used to trees that have a crop once a year, right? And figs are kind of that way. In the fall, there's a big crop. And that's when you have the big, full, juicy figs. They're the best fruits. But figs are kind of weird. Um, they actually have another harvest as well. Um, they produce a very small fruit throughout the winter when they actually don't have leaves. And then in the spring, when they start to put the leaves out, that's when those figs kind of ripen. They're not as good as the other ones. They're not big and full. This part of the story, it is early spring. It would have been completely reasonable for Jesus to expect to see the little fig fruit here. Instead, he sees a tree that looks productive, but it really wasn't. The leaves promised something, but it wasn't there. Remember the afternoon before? Uh, in, what did Jesus actually see in the temple? We have here one of these what we call Mark and Sandwiches. We've covered these a couple times. The, the author of Mark does something pretty cool here. And this is probably one of the, the best, the Bussin um, story here. This is the best one. It's my favorite. So a Mark and Sandwich is basically the, the author does this. He, he starts to tell one story. We call that the A story or the first slice of bread. Okay? He interrupts that story kind of and he puts a second story in the middle. That's the meat of the sandwich. And then he's got another slice of bread at the end where he comes back to the first story. And the reason why he does this is that these two end marks, those two pieces of bread, draw attention to the meat of the story and they work together. Uh, the technical term is it's an intercalated pericope. Nobody's going to remember that. That's okay. We'll just call it a Markin sandwich. Okay? Here's the particular sandwich. The first slice of bread, A, Jesus curses the fig tree for not having any fruit. Okay? And then B is the meat, and spoiler alert, Jesus clears out the temple, and he does it because it's not having any spiritual fruit. And then the last slice of bread, the disciples see the dead fig tree, and then Jesus teaches about how to have spiritual fruit. That's this Mark and Sandwich. Um, one other thing here that's helpful to know. Figs, the fig tree, is an analogy or a symbol that's used throughout the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. Okay? Lots of references. Books like Joel and Hosea and Zechariah and 1 Kings and Psalms and others use this, this analogy. 
uh, Jeremiah in particular uses it the most. And there's one point where Jeremiah is specifically talking about a prophecy for the, the, the corrupt religious leaders of his day, okay? Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. This is God speaking. God says, I will surely consume them, those religious leaders. They will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken. It would have been some nice Old Testament kind of knowledge or trivia for the disciples to have that in their back pocket that morning when Jesus curses the tree. They didn't get it in the moment. But they did get it in hindsight because it's in the Gospels. They remembered the story and it's important. So that's the first piece of bread. Jesus curses this fig tree for not being fruitful. Now to the meat. Same day, this is Monday. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to him, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. What were they doing that was so wrong? Well, people were supposed to be able to bring their own animal into the temple to sacrifice and for Passover to bring their own unblemished young lamb. And if you go to cultures today that are poor, you'll see why this is important. You see, in those cultures, for you to lose one of the family goats or chickens or a cow or a lamb, it's a big deal. It is a sacrifice to the family. And that's why it's also a sacrifice to give it to God. And see, the religious leaders were basically, anytime somebody brought in their own animal, they said, ah, it's not good enough. It's blemished. There's a problem. And they weren't allowing them to use their own animal, which didn't match the instructions given for what the sacrifice was supposed to be. And in fact, it didn't match the instructions for Passover. You didn't have to bring your lamb to the temple, but the religious leaders were in charge and they were making up the rules everybody had to follow. So you have your lamb, you brought it to the temple, you got there and were told you had to buy a new one. But you couldn't use your own money. You see, the coin you had has Caesar's face on it. And the Pharisees would say, well, you're worshiping Caesar to use that in the temple. And so you had to go to a money changer. You had to exchange your money for a temple coin, a coin that could only be used in the temple. And the exchange rate was horrible. Okay? Then you had to go buy your animal using that money. And the animal you were buying was overpriced, probably 16 times more than the street value. You were being extorted. You were being stolen from as you were trying to worship God. Oh, and, and what happened to the animal you brought in? Well, they would confiscate it and then resell it to somebody else later in the day. It was quite a scam. And all of this was taking place in the 35 acres of the temple court that's called the Court of Gentiles. It's where Israelites and Gentiles were supposed to come to pray. Instead, those 35 acres were being made into a feedlot and a place where everybody was getting ripped off. I think we're familiar out here with what 35 acres look like, right? That's a good place of, uh, that's a good piece of property. And so you, it should be filled with thousands and thousands of people praying and instead it's filled with animals. 
And Jesus calls it a den of thieves. That specific wording comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It's a passage of prophecy where Jesus, or where God was saying the temple is going to be destroyed, the first temple, because of how the religious leaders were treating things, the false religion that they were doing. Many of the Israelites would read that passage and say, well, it's actually God is going to cleanse the temple from the Gentiles. He's going to get rid of the Gentiles that have influence. But Jesus is reversing that here. He's basically saying he's cleaning the temple for us Gentiles. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not just Israelites. There's a lot going on in the temple, wasn't there? But none of it is helping people get closer to God. None of it's actually worship. Lots of leaves, no fruit. No fruit. My little uh, rain gauge at home has said that we have gotten eight inches of rain in the last 30 days. Compared with last year, I recorded three quarters of an inch total for the same period, right? Um, If you go to my house, it looks like we are in the middle of a huge, green, beautiful grassland, like some picture of a, a Kentucky horse farm, right? It's gorgeous. You look at it closer, it's just weeds, <laughs> right? There's no grass in there, it's just weeds, and in a couple of weeks it's going to look horrible, right? It looks productive, but it's not. It's just like the 35 acres of the temple that Monday morning. It looked good, but no fruit. And Jesus is calling out this hypocrisy. And how do the hypocrites react? When the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. When you are faced with honest truth about your own life, your character, or issues of sin in your life, how do you react? When someone points out lack of faith or sin, Do you accept it? Do you pray for change? Or do you become defensive and you lash out? Are you willing to be transformed when that happens? Or are you a Pharisee? Something we have to think through. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city, and to day two, and to Monday. It's setting up a pattern. This entire week, that's what Jesus and the disciples are going to do. They're going to go in and out every day, in and out, up and down from the Mount of Olives, or the, yeah, the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. That's the pattern that's going to happen. The next verse is day three, Tuesday. Um, And by the way, um, chapters 12 and 13 are all about Tuesday. So we're going to be in Tuesday for a bit. That was the meat turning over the tables, confronting the religious leaders. Now we get to the second slice of bread. The next morning, Tuesday, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered up from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree and on, the pre- on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. I think he's surprised here, Right? It kind of baffles us a little bit. You know, he's been for three years with Jesus. Jesus says, let's see, he's walked on the water, he's calmed the storms, 
He's healed the blind, the lame, the leprous, the sick. He's cast out demons. And Peter's surprised that what he said actually happened, right? Like I said earlier, I think this was an an object lesson for the disciples. And Jesus is about to launch into a three-pronged explanation of how to have leaves and fruit, the opposite of the religious leaders. The things that he wanted to find in the temple that he couldn't. And those three things are faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Verse 22, then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. First step, have faith. Trust God. You know, some people want a sign that God is real before they start to believe him. But Jesus, I think, is really saying you could just have faith. You move forward and then you'll be able to see. What does your faith look like today? Are you looking for a sign? Or do you just trust that Jesus listens to you, that he's real? Jesus continued saying, but when you... Sorry. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Second step is pray. I mean, how critical is prayer, right? I think sometimes we take it for granted that every moment of every day, we can approach the God of the universe, the creator of everything, our Savior, in prayer. Every moment. So how important is prayer to you? Uh, Is it a daily priority? Something you make sure happens? Do you, maybe like Paul suggests, you pray continuously without end? Do you believe that what you pray for, God will actually answer? That he listens to you, that he cares for you, and that he'll answer, even if the answer isn't maybe what you want. Do you believe he will answer it? And then the third thing, Jesus says, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone who you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Third step, forgiveness. This is a huge part of not just having leaves, but actually producing spiritual fruit. Forgiveness, asking for forgiveness from people and giving forgiveness to people. Man, it's just a massive part of our heart posture, how we love God and love others well. For instance, do you have family that you haven't talked with in years because of some fight? Shouldn't be that way. Do you have people that you avoid because they hurt you? Shouldn't be that way. Do you have people that you skirt around because you realize you've hurt them in the past and you just don't want to deal with it? How can we expect to have spiritual fruit if we don't forgive people, if we hold on to malice and envy and anger and grudges and unforgiveness? You know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, right? It doesn't work. It only hurts us. Have faith, pray, and forgive. Now I want to go back for a moment here and maybe just give a slightly different perspective than you heard about this prayer that he's talking about. You've likely heard it said before that you have to have faith that can move mountains, right? 
um, that maybe it's a test of your faith. Do you believe that God is big enough to answer your prayers, that he's actually going to go through with it? But that's not what the passage actually says. It's taking the scripture out of context. Notice it doesn't say move a mountain. It specifically says this mountain. This mountain. You'll find that in all the English translations. You'll find it in the other gospels that record this story. This mountain. It's specific. And if Jesus was being specific about this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? Where's he heading? He's going up to the Temple Mount at this point. I think that he's talking about this mountain being the Temple Mount, being the false religion that's going on, about having leaves and not producing fruit, about hypocrisy. And I think he's saying we're supposed to pray that this mountain will be thrown into the sea, and by the way, it was. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and and thrown over the edge. So what is Jesus asking us to pray for? Are we supposed to pray for a new car, a new spouse maybe, a genie and a lamp so we have lots of wishes, or maybe a blessing from his cosmic vending machine? No. He's asking us to pray about his kingdom. His kingdom. And his kingdom is where he reigns in our hearts. For real faith, for productive spiritual fruit being a good fig tree. I really believe he is asking us to pray for the mountain of false religion that we all have. The hypocrisy, the self-righteousness, going through the motions but not really connecting. That's what he's talking about. He's asking us to pray for a new heart posture, to forgive others. So where are you this morning? Can I, for a few moments, share my heart as a pastor for us, for us all, me too? What are we doing to make Jesus real in our life every day? Are we walking with faith even when we don't have the answers in life? Are you talking to Jesus all the time, asking for his help to see his kingdom? to see the people around us who need his kingdom, to see the things we need to change in our life and our role in his kingdom. And then are we fulfilling that role? Are we actually stepping into it? Are we forgiving others? Are we doing all that we can to live in peace as much as it's up to us with people around us? Are we making allowances for other people's faults? And then the hard one, are we asking for forgiveness? When we mess up, we make mistakes, all of us. When we hurt others, are we going to them and saying the words, will you forgive me? Not making excuses, but actually admitting, humbling ourselves and saying, will you forgive me? And giving them the control to decide, will they forgive us or not? Faith, prayer, forgiveness. This isn't rocket science. It's life-changing, but it is hard. It takes intentional effort. It takes focus. It takes time. It takes humility. And I think it's what he's calling us to, so we love God and love others better.
Make sense? My opinion is that chapter 11 should end here, okay? Um, I've said this several times. Chapter and verse numbers weren't written in the original book when it was put together. They were added about 1,500 years later by a French printing press publisher to make his job better. I think he messed this one up. Because the last little bit here in chapter 11 really is all about chapter 12. It's the setup. But we're kind of walking through the chapter, so I'll finish it real quick. I'll set up something for Pastor Don next week, all right? So after Jesus does this incredible lesson on faith, prayer, and forgiveness for us, they again entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? Sometimes when we read scripture, we take emotion out of it. They didn't come up to him politely, right? They didn't go, hey, Jesus, I know you're busy. Um, Yesterday, you kind of made a mess, and um, we just want to know why you're doing it, right? That's not what they're doing. They're going, by what authority did you do this? Remember, they're planning to kill him. They're torqued off. They're getting up in his grill. They're mad, right? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. Jesus is brilliant, right? He sets up this incredible dilemma now for them. Um, This is one of the few times in Scripture we actually get to see the internal conflict that somebody's having, kind of their internal dialogue. The religious leaders talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. It wasn't a trick by Jesus, but it was a test. I think he's trying to see, are they going to respond with a faith or a spiritual answer here? Or are they going to go with an answer that's related to position and power and privilege and politics? And for them to respond back and say, I don't know, was basically politics. And so he looked at him and said, you're not ready for spiritual answers. I'm not going to waste my time. And that response sets up chapter 12. Chapter 12 is all about Jesus publicly lighting into the the religious leaders and saying they're screwed up. Pastor Don's going to pick that up next week. So what's my takeaway for you this week? The big thing, don't be fruitless. Don't look religious on the outside and have nothing going on on the inside. It does no good to memorize a thousand verses and not have a single one penetrate your heart. We need Scripture to actually change us. We need Jesus and the Holy Spirit working on us, forgiving us, transforming us. You see, being fruitless now may result in being fruitless forever. I don't want that for you. Instead, faith, prayer, forgiveness. Pretty simple. We've got to do it. And our hope and our prayer is this summer as we walk through Mark, you will be marked by Jesus and changed. 
this morning I'm going to conclude with prayer. And I'm going to pray for a few moments. And then I'm going to pause a few times and give space for you to pray on your own where you're at. I'll give you kind of a prompt a little bit, give you something to, to think about and pray. And I'll give you a little bit of time. And we'll just kind of pray like a directed prayer out of this, okay? Here we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you that we are here together and we get to worship you. And I thank you for your word. I thank you for us being able to walk through the gospel of Mark and Jesus to see what you did here on earth, what you taught, what was important, and what you wanted us to walk away with. I'm thankful that you took the time to teach your disciples that doing things that look religious has nothing to do with actually having a relationship with you. That going through a lot of motions, maybe going through church or just knowing a lot of scripture doesn't count if we're not changed by it. That you want us to be spiritually fruitful. This morning, Lord, I, I think sometimes we walk through life um, without real faith. We kind of trust our own abilities, the control that we maybe have over things, and then something comes along that makes us realize we're really not in control and we don't know what to do. So this morning, Lord, um, right now, Holy Spirit, be with us and show us things in our life that maybe we are trying to do without faith. And even right now, allow us to pray and to surrender those things to you. Jesus, here on earth, you spent a lot of time talking to us about prayer. And that prayer is really just a conversation that we get to have with you and God and the Holy Spirit. Um, that we don't have to say the right things in the right order. It's not like we're casting a magic spell or something. We just talk to you. And thank you for that opportunity. Lord, I, I pray that you will show us this morning the things that maybe we're supposed to be praying for that we're not. That you'll open our eyes right now to things about your kingdom things that um, we still need to, to figure out so that we can participate fully in your kingdom and that maybe we need to figure out what role you have with us. Um, and maybe even it's about people who don't have the kingdom yet that we're supposed to, to connect with. So right now, I, I pray, Lord, that you bring to mind things that we do need to pray right now that we haven't in the last week. Jesus, I believe there's quite a few of us that have issues around forgiveness this morning that maybe there's people that have hurt us deeply in the past and we still haven't forgiven them. So maybe this morning you'll give us opportunity to just be willing to go ahead and forgive them through you. And there may also be people that we have hurt, and so I pray for your spirit just to bring up maybe people we need to approach this week and to ask for forgiveness. So right now, let's just pray about, about those things and, and courage, maybe, that we can approach these areas of forgiveness this week. Jesus, thank you for being the suffering servant, Messiah King, that you opened up a period of time for grace, that we can come to you, that you took on our sins so that we could be forgiven, that we can have eternal life when we believe in you. Lord, I thank you that you didn't come just to wipe everything out, but you came out of love and humility, riding a donkey's colt, 
Jesus, we need you as the suffering servant so often. Thank you for loving us. Long before we knew anything about you, long before we started to turn towards you while we were ugly and selfish and full of sin, you loved us. Remind us this week of that love and that there's others that need it too. Jesus, it's in your perfect name that we pray. Amen.